Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 10, read as follows. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over, oops, just lost my spot right there, pardon me. Uh, We're almost there. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them from all the face of the earth. These are the generations of Shem. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you now to open our minds and hearts to the study of your word and help us to see the beauty of your mercy and your judgment all put together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You guys can be seated. This morning we finally reached the end of the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And Lord willing, after this time, we're going to return our attention to the gospel according to Matthew. So if you wondered whatever happened to that Matthew sermon series, it's coming back soon, Lord willing. We want to especially, probably about the 10th of July, we're going to begin the Sermon on the Mount. And so that will be where we pick back up in our study together. And then either at the end of the Sermon on the Mount or maybe, you know, at a suitable point toward the end of Matthew 9 or whatever, we will then come back. And we'll look back at Genesis, and the goal will be to work through the life then of Abraham. But before we do that, before we say goodbye to these early sections of Genesis, we've got one bit of work to do this morning. We need to see how the stage ends up set for Abraham to enter the picture, and how the family of God is going to be clearly set apart in the world. We've got one last look to take at the amazing mingling of the judgment and the mercy of God, because both happen here in this passage, as the Lord will carry out his plan. Now, if you are a note taker, you can be ready for four main points this morning, four points this morning. But before we get into them, let's take a second, because it's worthwhile, to summarize where we've been, so that as we get to the end of this morning's message, we have a fair picture of the beginning, the introduction to the book of Genesis. Back in Genesis chapter 1, God created everything that is. He specifically created mankind in His image. And that means for you and me that we exist to demonstrate the glory of God for all the rest of creation to see. 
Then in chapter 3, the people that God made turned against him. They were tempted by the devil. They desired to be their own rulers. The human beings God made intentionally disobeyed a clearly given simple command of God. And that rebellion led the people into shame and rebellion and, 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 and fear. And eventually it brings the curse of death into the world All of the earth, all of the universe, really, was affected by the rebellion of the people in the garden. But in the middle of that horrible scene, God did something amazing. God made a promise of tremendous importance. In Genesis 3.15, God told the serpent, the devil, that somebody was coming into the world. Someone is coming, one of the woman's future descendants, and he is going to crush the head of the devil. This promise is the first hint that God had planned all along to bring someone to rescue his fallen people. This is the first hint that God is going to send someone into the world to fix what is going wrong because of humanity's rebellion. God is going to be glorified not just as being a good, powerful God, but as both merciful and just. Well, as the world moved on, the first people had children who had children who had children, but the world was corrupt. Violence and sexual immorality and sinfulness marked the human race. And eventually God determined He would judge the world by destroying all living, breathing flesh from the face of the planet. But God was not going to let go of the promise that He made to send someone into the world to rescue His chosen children. So God chose to have mercy on Noah and Noah's family. God had Noah build a large ship and take on board with him representatives of all the kinds of breathing animals. And Noah entered that ship with his wife, with his three sons, and with their three wives. And God shut the door of the ship and God sent a massive flood and God destroyed all the rest of breathing life on the planet. But Noah was safe. And Noah and those with him survived the flood. Then chapter 9, we see the world after the flood. It's as if God has repeated the creation process. Humanity starts over. God reminded Noah of the value of life. God reminded Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. God promised Noah and all living things that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. And just like before, Noah reminded us that humanity is, at our nature, a rebellious and sinful people. Then in chapters 9 and 10, we see the new family of humanity begin to multiply. Noah's three sons become the fathers of many peoples. Nations sprang from their family tree. God even showed us that one family line in Noah's descendants, the line of Shem, was particularly to be the blessed line. And at this point, the reader of Genesis might have a couple of questions. If all the world 
descended from Noah and Mrs. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives, how do we get all the nations? How do we get all the people? How do we get all the languages on the earth? Very fair question. And it has a telling answer. Chapter 10 told us the nations and the languages existed, but it didn't tell us how they got here. Why are they different? Chapter 11 will show us how those nations came into being. And chapter 11 is going to show us how the line of promise, the family line from whom God's promised rescuer is going to come, how it comes into being as well and how it stands apart. So if you're ready, point number one this morning, and there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of gospel. Man, there's a lot of gospel at the beginning of Genesis, isn't there? Watch this. Come to God through faith, not work. Come to God through faith, not work. That's point one. Look at verses one through four of Genesis 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plan in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So as the passage opens, we see people who have one language. That makes sense because you don't think Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth were speaking different languages, right? They had one language left. But they're moving around. These people and their descendants are moving around. And they end up in the land of Shinar, which is eventually what we find as the area where the Babylonian Empire would be. Uh, this is modern-day Iraq and the surrounding areas. It's the place known by historians as the cradle of civilization where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers are, right? And in verse 3, the people determined to use the technology that they have at their disposal to build. They're going to bake bricks. They're not just going to stack stones. They're going to use mortar. They're going to stick it together. These people are smart and resourceful. And then in verse 4, we see two parts of their plan. They're going to build a city and they're going to build a great big tower as the prominent part of that city. And it's all so they can make a great name for themselves. And so, for heaven's sake, the last thing they want to do is get scattered and separated across the globe. They're going to prevent that from happening because they are strong. Now, to the careful reader of Genesis, there are already problems emerging. One concern is that they want to build a city for themselves. Do you remember what God told the people to do? through Noah. They're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and do what? Think about it. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He didn't say be fruitful, multiply, and find one place to stick together. These people are determined that they are going to stay together and ignore and reject the command that God gave them in the blessing for Noah and his sons. They don't want it. There's a problem. 
Then they want to build a tower with its top reaching the heavens. And that, my friends, is a very big problem. Now, I don't know that many of us have spent a lot of time over the last little bit studying ancient Mesopotamian architecture. If you have, God bless you, you're kind of nerdy. But many ancient settlements, especially in that part of the world, had towers that were called ziggurats. And a ziggurat was a squared off tower. It would have looked like stair-stepping kind of tower, almost not quite pyramid because it had been pointier than that, but it would have sort of come in as it went up, right? Big, squared, stair-stepping tower, built, by the way, by the kind of baked bricks that we see in verse 3. And these things would stair-step up to great heights. They were ancient skyscrapers. And they were often used for the practice of pagan religions. The Babylonians used ziggurats to worship Marduk for evil rites, sometimes for human sacrifices. Others would use the tops of the towers where they would go to worship the moon and the stars. Now, we don't know that this was a ziggurat per se, but it's still got a problem. You see, the people thought they could build a tower that would let them walk up to heaven. They think that by their work and their skill and their togetherness, by their power for their glory, that they can build themselves a connection to the place where God lives. They're building the original man-made stairway to heaven. Now, do you see the problem, church? Listen to me. There are, and there always have been, two basic religions in the world. There is a kind of religion in which a person works his or her way to God. And there's the biblical religion of grace. That's it. Those are the only two religions that exist. And here we see, not long after the flood, that mankind has again fallen into a man-centered, works-based, build-your-way-to-God religion. Please understand that nobody can work his or her way to God. You can't build a tall enough tower to reach God. But neither can you stack together enough good works, good deeds, good attitudes. I'm a good little boy. I'm a good little girl. Activities to make your way to God. We naturally and dramatically fall short of the glory of God. Now, why? Why do we fall short of the glory of God? I'm going to give you two reasons. Ready? Two reasons. God is holy. Mankind is sinful. That's why we fall short. Pretty simple, isn't it? God's holy. He is absolutely perfect. His perfection is impeccable. He is unlimited in his power. He is never ending in his goodness. He is infinitely above and beyond his creation. And we... Well, how many of you think that what I just said totally applies to you? I too am infinitely perfect and above and beyond all creation. We know better, don't we? All people 
all human beings with the exception of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, have sinned. All of us have either failed to do all the good that we should do, or we have failed to avoid all the evil we should avoid. And that failure marks us and causes a gap, a separation, a differentiation between us and God. There's a gap you and I can't bridge because the imperfect cannot on its own become perfect. It doesn't matter how high you climb. It doesn't matter how hard you try. No matter how far you reach, none of us can become perfect like God. So you see, what sets biblical Christianity apart from every other world religion out there is that the Bible declares that God must come down and rescue us. We can't work our way up to Him. Our good deeds cannot build us a tower or a stairway to heaven. Only God's choice to come down and get us to have mercy on us could ever rescue us. So what in the world, what in the world do we do with that knowledge, folks? We learn that we don't try to work our way to God. We don't work our way to God through religion. We don't work our way to God by finding yourself or, or we, you don't work your way to God by emptying your mind through spiritual meditation and you don't work your way to God through human accomplishment. You cannot get to God through any way you can contrive. And then we marvel at what God actually has done because God chose to come to us. God sent His Son, Jesus, to become human. And Jesus came to earth and He lived a perfect human life. Nobody else has ever even dreamed of living a life like Jesus's. And then He died on the cross. And Jesus' death was the perfect sacrificial payment for the sins of every single person God would ever forgive. Then... Then, Jesus rose from the dead, living again, and proving that the grace of God was available to every single person who would come to Him. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tell us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So how do we get to God? We get to God not by doing something. Not by building anything. Not by offering anything. We get to God by His grace through faith. And nothing else. We believe what God has done. We trust Jesus. We accept the fact that Jesus is our only hope. And and that He really died for our sins, that He really rose to life again. And that kind of faith saves us and not any mountain of good deeds. Now, we'll be quick to say that when you're saved, it leads to life change. Nobody genuinely who trusts in Jesus believes they should continue to be in charge of their own lives. We surrender to the Lordship of Jesus as part of believing in Jesus. 
But it's not the action of obedience that saves you. The actions of obedience follow the faith. Obedience is the result of salvation, never the cause of salvation. And that's why even here, even thinking about the Tower of Babel, I call us, come to God through faith, not through work. By the way, just just stopping for a second, totally off my notes. Isn't it cool how often you can see the gospel in the Old Testament? It's right there. Idiots thought they could work their way to God. doesn't work. That reminds us of Jesus, who's our only way. Point number two, glorify God, not man. Glorify God, not man. This is easy, right? Look at verse four. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So notice as well, the people of the city here wanted to make a name for themselves. Folks, that's a big mistake. Can any of you, let's, let's play a little question and answer since, you know, that's how we roll sometimes. Can you guys remember the only people in the book of Genesis so far who made a name for themselves? The only people who were people of renown? It was in Genesis chapter 6. Do you know who it was? It was the Nephilim. The only people that the book of Genesis thus far says made a name for themselves. They were the evil, violent, godless offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6 because of whom the flood came and destroyed the world. You ever notice we don't learn real good? See, the truth is, folks, pride, putting ourselves in the center of our own universe, is at the heart of every human sin. And we naturally think that we deserve to be honored. We think we deserve to be glorified. And when we fall prey to those thoughts, we attempt to steal the glory that only God deserves. So the mistake of humanity is to think, if I get more glory for myself... I'll be happy. Do you guys see people falling prey to that, by the way? If I could get more glory for me, I would get happy. See, that's why people hunger for fame and wealth and power. Just consider how many people will hurt themselves or other people because they want to be the center of attention. How many men will step on others to put themselves forward? How many women will compromise themselves deeply only to be praised by somebody else? How many people who can't be the center of attention in the world around them, they sit around bitter because the world does not treat them like they deserve to be treated? By the way, that's the same sin, right? Being mad that the world doesn't see that you're great is as bad as bragging that you're great. How many people give up living in reality so that they can live in a little fantasy world where everybody loves them, everybody bows to them, every woman or man wants them, and nobody can beat them? It's all 
me getting my glory. That's what it's about. But here's what's crazy. The thing that we try in order to fill our lives, give me glory so I can be happy, is exactly the opposite of the way to be happy. God made us for His glory. And that means that the thing that will actually make us happy is when God gets glory and not us. Would you guys agree with me? Would you guys agree with me? That fulfilling your reason for existence ought to give you joy? That makes sense, doesn't it? If you were, and I've done this with you guys before, if you were a plane, an airplane, what would give you joy? Speak, this is the audience participation part of the program. Flying, Flying right? Okay, if, if, if you were a hammer, what would give you joy? Pounding nails, right? Doing what I'm made for gives me joy. Doing what you're made for gives you joy. God made you as an instrument to display His glory. And when we glorify God instead of ourselves, we get joy. How much joy? I mean... How much joy does God have to give us? Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let me ask you honestly. How would you like endless delight and pleasures forevermore? Does that sound good to you? If you say no to that, you're dumb. I mean, I love you, but you're dumb. No, I don't want to be happy. I think I'd rather just be miserable. No. I want pleasures forever. I want joy forever. I want to be happy. And the beauty of Christianity is we're not saying give up joy so you don't go to hell. That's what a lot of people think the church is, right? They think we're a group of people who say, let's not do anything fun so we can go to heaven when we die. That is not Christianity. That is worldly. That is false religion. That's the works-based religion that we say doesn't work. Instead, God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give up what does not satisfy. I want you to give up what seems like it would have joy but will actually leave you disappointed. I want you to give that up for what will give you the greatest possible joy you could ever have. I want you to trade what doesn't work for what does. I want you to trade what leaves you empty for what will make you full. I want you to turn away from what won't give you joy to what will give you the ultimate joy. That's what Christianity is. You see, in a real sense, Christianity's simplest command is glorify God. And glorifying God is what gives you joy. So Christianity, simply put, is the command of God to get your greatest joy. Don't you think this is a good picture of the faith? This is satisfying beyond anything we could imagine because God is greater and soul-filling. But the men of the tower wanted to make a name for themselves. 
that's foolish. Glorify God and not man. By doing so, God promises you joy. Third point. Thank God for mercy. Thank God for mercy. Look at 5 through 9. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they'll do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So, in verse 5, the tower tale turns. There's a lot going on here in the language that's used. In the writing style, we can't see it as clearly because we don't read Hebrew. But if you could read the Hebrew, what you would find is that God inspired Moses to write this story with style. See, this story has a lot of repeated sounds of words. Think about the old tongue twister, right? Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. How many pick a puppet to Peter Piper pick? Remember that? Remember doing that when you were younger? That has a repeated sound, and it also kind of turns the phrase around, right? It kind of goes up and then comes back down as the way it builds in, in, in just the way it's rhythmically written in the themes that come and go. Well, the tower tale does the same thing. God repeats sounds like that. And it, in fact, God uses words that are the exact backwards writing of other words, the exact backwards sound of other words to show us the picture of the men building up and God bringing down. And there is a sarcasm to verse 5. The men said, we are going to build ourselves a tower that reaches the heavens. And the language of verse 5 says God has to get way down just to see that will be tower down there. That's why God says, let's, let's go down and see if we can see it. I, I can't see it from up here. Now, we know God really can see it all, right? But it's funny. This shows the puny people baking bricks and wasting work. And God looks and he sees the people and he sees that their unified language is a danger. Do you guys think, by the way, that this is a danger to God? Can you threaten God? So their language does not threaten God. It's a danger to the people themselves. You see, if God lets these people keep going as they are, they're going to run smack into God's judgment. God is going to have to kill them again. But God promised in chapter 9, He's not going to kill us all with a global flood. So, 
God moves to prevent the people from running into the same mess that they were running straight for. So what God does is he decides to confuse the languages of the different peoples. We don't know how this worked. We don't know what it sounded like. But it seems that through a miracle of the power of God, one day the people woke up, tried to talk, and different families and different tribes couldn't understand each other. It's like that time when you accidentally press the wrong menu button on your TV and everything comes up in German. And what do you do? Right? Because you used to know what was going on. Now you just press buttons as fast as you can, hoping you can accidentally hit the one that sets it back to normal. It's kind of funny. And this whole thing's funny, right? Have you noticed the language? The people say, come, let us. Let us build. God says, come, let us stop them. The people said, we're going to work our way to heaven. God says, I have to squat down even to see you. You're not even close. The people say, oh, we'll build this great city and great tower because the one thing we don't want is to be scattered. God moved them all over the globe. What we see, what we see, folks, is a really sweet picture of the judgment and the mercy of God sat side by side. Because on the one hand, there's a judgment, right? The people cannot communicate with one another easily. That's disappointing. The city building effort and the tower project are dead. The people are scattered. They didn't like that. But you know what? God didn't kill them for thinking that they could make this name for themselves. God mercifully stopped the people before they could walk into their own destruction. And even more is God separated the people. Their languages are different. So never again would one man's idea be able to lead the entire human race into rebellion against God and cause a global cataclysm like the flood. As I heard one teacher say, this prevents one bad apple from being able to spoil the whole bunch. So it's mercy of God that the languages are created and scattered. And it's so cool because in this move, God creates culture. People are different. If God hadn't done this, we wouldn't know the joys of different foods and different music and different styles of dress and different art and different nations. God brought color to the canvas of the world when he did this. He brought variety in. God developed culture, wonderful, diverse, and glorious. So folks, thank God here when you see this for mercy. What mercy do we see from God? Well, one, he didn't kill you the moment of your first sin. That was merciful. Instead, what God does, he often redirects our lives to keep us away from the path of destruction. Think of roads you could have gone down that would have led to your ruin that God never lets you walk down. And I guarantee you, you don't know the half of them. While we might be frustrated at the time, Sometimes we can look back at our lives and see how God guarded our souls by not giving us what we wanted. God showed mercy at the tower. God shows us mercy by giving us breath and by preventing us from experiencing His wrath. So thank God for mercy.
But what happens next? What's this book about? What's Genesis about? Is it about boats and towers and gardens and apples? it's, It's his story, isn't it? It's God's story. This book is about the faithful God who promises and promises and promises and promises and promises to send someone to rescue people from their sin for himself, for his glory. This has been about that from the very beginning, hasn't it? The God who created, the God who promises a savior, the God who judges, the God who keeps his promise alive. That's what this is about. Well, what about that promise that God's been making? Isn't that what this is about? Watch this. We'll wrap up with point number four. Praise God for preserving his promise. That could be the whole book of Genesis' title, by the way. Praise God for preserving his promise. Because that's exactly what the whole book's about. But look at just the beginning of 10, 11 verse 10. It says, these are the generations of Shem. Now, if you've, if you've watched this book happen, right, we keep getting story followed by genealogy, followed by story, followed by genealogy, followed by story, followed by family tree, right? Well, now we're going to see the family line of Noah's sons that are most blessed. And guys, I'll let you in on the secret. This is the line of the promised one. Back in chapter 10, we saw Shem's line mentioned, starting at verse 21, right? But it only gets as far as the division of two descendants of Shem, Joktan and Peleg. But now, in chapter 11, we're going to follow this line further, and we see the sons of Peleg. It's as if, because it says it's during Peleg's time that the earth was divided, it's almost as if Peleg and Joktan were brothers, and they went separate ways at this whole Tower of Babel thing. Maybe one of them was a bad guy. But Peleg, after the world divided, he fathers the children who father the children who are the line of promise. And as you see the, de- the descendant list of Shem, there's a few things to notice, right? I mean, one, if you start looking at the numbers that happen in this genealogy, the lifespans get dramatically shorter. These guys had been living 900 years, years ago. Now it's shrinking down to get close to that 120-year lifespan that Noah heard from God before the flood. We also see some significance in numbers here. This is another set of 10 generations, just like there's 10 generations listed in Genesis 5. And then also, just like we saw in Genesis 5, the last generation mentions three significant sons and not just one. And so we can tell that if we follow this story and we go to the next story, we're going to see a really important family and a really important person. And the fact that at the end of this chapter we see, again, these are the generations, it cries out for the reader's attention. I'm telling the story of the promised people. Look at 26 all the way down to 32. We'll wrap up. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur the Chaldeans. And Abram and Naor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Lot's, or the name of Nahor's 
wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, now Sarah was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, again, if you were a Jewish reader of this book and you knew your story, you've just heard the name that just goes, yeah, I know this one. You ever have that moment like a song comes on and you're happy because you know it? Oh, there's Abram, I know this one. This is the guy. Abram is the one that the people of Israel knew. This is the father of the nation. This is Father Abraham who had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. They should make a song out of that. But not sing it in front of me. Uh, Abram's story is going to go from 1127 all the way through 2510 of the book of Genesis. He gets a lot of space. But before we leave this tale, notice some cool stuff. We see the name of Abram's wife and his brother and even his nephew. But if I said to you, Abram, Sarai, Lot, those names mean something to you, don't they? They ring bells. Actually, Nahor and Milcah should ring bells for people because they're important too. And in the following chapters, it's the, it's the blending of all those people and their lives together that's going to bring about the promised family tree of God's promised Savior. Most importantly, we see that God is preserving the promise. He is setting apart a guy named Abram to be the one to carry the big promise to bring us the family, the family of the rescuer. It's a long way off in the future, but it's coming. Now, by the way, how cool is it that God chose to save Abram? He lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Y'all, everything about the language of the people and the place around Abram hints to us that Abram lived among a family of moon-worshipping pagans. Who knows? Maybe Abram's town had its own ziggurat. Maybe Abram climbed steps up to gaze at the stars and bow to the moon and wonder if something better could be out there. I can tell you for sure, God was about to show Abram exactly how much greater is the God who made the heavens than are the heavens themselves. So Christians, praise God for preserving the promise. We were hopeless had God not kept his word. We would be out in the desert among a bunch of moon-worshipping pagans and like it if God hadn't done something about it. But God is faithful and he's worthy of our love and he's worthy of our lives. And if you hear this message and you don't know the God I'm talking about, I invite you, I urge you, come to the God who made you. His promised one, his promised rescuer is Jesus. And Jesus calls every one of us to trust in him and to turn from our sins and to be rescued and be saved and be forgiven by him. If you need help to know how to do that, 
Come talk to me. I'd love to help you however I can. But if you are a believer here this morning, and most of us are, let this passage cause you to praise God. God is faithful to His promises. Also, let it remind you that we don't work our way to God. God does not require you to do good works to be saved. Now, yes, we obey the commands of God, but never to earn standing before God. We obey God because bringing God glory gives us joy. So, folks, as we close the book of Genesis for a season, let us praise our God, our Creator, the great and faithful Keeper of His promises. Let's bow together and pray.